It was Crossing's Eve. The air was cold, and the wind howled through the street. In the square ahead of Oria, a massive bonfire cast a cheery glow across the buildings and passers-by. Crowds bustled between open-air stalls, musicians played, and troops of mummers performed traditional folk plays in clearings. The actors, each dressed in an elaborate costume, took on the personas of the gods, heroes of old, and the terrifying rulers of the fair folk. Their faces were obscured by carved and painted masks in the likeness of their characters, as they cavorted through old stories, the gods shaping the world, the rise and fall of the king of the fairies, and the banishing of the fair folk from the isle. On the fire, wood crackled alongside bones from sheep and cows, sacrifices to appease any spirits that might be lingering on that portentous night. It was Crossing's Eve. That night, the year would step from the season of life into the season of death. From the warmth of summer to the cold of winter. Like almost everyone else in the city, Oria had been prepared to celebrate the successful harvest and at least pay lip service to the rites and rituals that accompanied the festival. All of that slipped from her mind, however, when she saw an old friend on the far side of the square. A friend she hadn't seen in many, many years. Sorry. It wasn't just any friend, in fact. He was her brother. She was certain. It was unmistakably him, even with a crowd between them and the bonfire's smoke hanging heavily in the air. He hadn't changed a bit since she had last seen him. His hair was still black as night, untouched by the gray that had frosted her own hair. The set of his shoulders as he laughed a deep belly laugh was the same as it had been in their youth. Even his attire, his old brown and gold surcoat over a leather tunic, with his sword at his side, was the same as when their paths had diverged. Excuse me. Oria pushed through the throng of people. She called out his name, but her voice was lost in laughter and applause as the actors finished the play and the audience cheered. At last, she managed to shoulder her way through the last cluster of bystanders blocking her path to find nothing. Her brother was nowhere to be seen. She felt a hollow pang of loss. Of course her brother wasn't here, she knew that. He was dead. He had died almost 10 years ago on a campaign in the service of the king. You could still picture him waving from the stern of the longship as it pulled away from the dock, wearing the same gold and brown surcoat, his hair black as night, calling out across the water that he would return soon. It was Crossing's Eve. That night, they say, the deceased could step from the land of the dead back into the land of the living, even if only for one night. Oria, like everyone in the kingdom of Miringard, knew the folklore behind the festival. It was a dangerous night, according to the druids. The souls of departed loved ones weren't the only things that could cross into the mortal realm. The fair folk could leave their hills and barrows to menace the people of the island, and only through the proper ceremonies could they be driven back to the other world where they resided. 
And so it was that in every great and small settlement across the realm, people built bonfires, held rituals, offered sacrifices, and rang bells to protect themselves throughout the night. That was a great deal of superstition, of course. Most of the common folk in the city of Veldast simply viewed the festival as a chance to set aside their work and enjoy the revelry, while the nobility used it as an opportunity to display their prosperity and wealth. Crossing's Eve may have been celebrated with more fear and reverence in the remote parts of the island, but the capital city was far removed from the dangers of the wilderness and folklore. Everyone had heard stories about the dangers of insulting the fair folk by ignoring tradition, but almost every story was told secondhand, traveling by word of mouth until they no longer held any personal meaning. All of these things passed through Oria's head as she began making her way out of the crowded square. She had been raised in the local faith, of course, but she had never put that much stock in ghost stories. The pang of loss still ached, but it was joined by a new emotion, hope. Maybe the stories held a grain of truth. Maybe her brother wasn't as far away as she had thought. Welcome to a world very much like our own, but with a crucial difference. In this world, folklore is rooted in stark reality. My name is John Kernett and I'll be guiding you through stories of strange events, close encounters, political conflicts, and tragic history, all set in a unique world that blends reality and mythology. This is the Wayfarer's Compendium. The house was cheap. Unbelievably cheap, in fact. The manor was a complex of three large buildings, located on the northern edge of Lake Eyre, bordering Veldast. It sat adjacent to a small forest, dominating many acres of land surrounding it. The nearest neighbor was a similarly expansive estate over a mile away. A wide dirt road passed from the city to the manor, lazily following the path of least resistance through the fields that stretched far into the distance. The house itself was in a state of terrible disrepair. What was once a beautiful villa with a great hall, chambers for servants, and a splendid courtyard had wasted away from neglect. Its gates, tall wooden doors with rusted hinges that screamed at the faintest movement, were emblazoned with an image of a raven in flight an old family crest belonging to some previous owner. Stepping inside the great hall, one could smell the faint rot of wood and feel a chilly draft that seemed to come from everywhere all at once. The courtyard, once a garden, was overgrown with weeds and bushes. 
The prospect of restoring such a chateau to its former glory was daunting, certainly. There was a larger question, however. How had such an estate ended up like this? That was the first thing that Callum asked when he learned of the opportunity. Callum was the younger son of the Duke of Tarfall, a learned man with many curiosities and far too much time on his hands. A friend of his who lived near the manor had informed him of the property's availability and the difficulty its current owner was having in finding a buyer. A very strange situation given the desirable nature of the land. It was located squarely within a region known as North Shore, and all of its neighboring properties were owned by some of the most powerful nobles, clergymen, and merchants in the kingdom. The idea that no buyers could be found was ludicrous, and yet here the manor was, run down and nearly abandoned. After further questioning, Callum's friend caved and explained why the house was so undesirable. The manor, you see, was haunted. Supposedly, one of its previous inhabitants had actually been frightened to death by a mysterious specter whose presence was announced by an eerie keening and the rattling of chains. It came in the night, creating such a terrible display that any viewers would surely flee in terror, lest they suffer the same fate as the home's late owner. Far from dissuading the young noble, the story only served to pique his curiosity. He may not have been a man of the cloth, but he had studied the theology of the Druids during his time at the Priory, and kept with him a healthy skepticism regarding the supernatural. Dipping into his family's coffers, he immediately went and purchased the land. Should the haunting prove fictitious, he had made an excellent investment. The chateau was, after all, almost dirt cheap at this point. And, should the haunting prove to be real, well, he would deal with that situation when the time came. A certain amount of restoration would need to be done prior to moving in. Workers were sent ahead to remove debris within the buildings, patch holes in the structures, and prepare for the young lord's arrival. As the first hint of sunset descended upon the manor, Callum dismissed his servants and settled in. Even with the preliminary work that had been done, the residents still retained the scent of old wood and a seemingly inescapable chill. Callum was determined to avoid letting his mind slip into idleness, which he knew would lead to speculation about the purported spirit. Instead of jumping at every creak from the rafters and flickering shadow cast by the fire crackling merrily in the hearth, he resolved to dedicate the evening to his studies, writing a treatise in a thin, neat script by candlelight. And so, the night began. The candles burned low as the hour approached midnight. It was then that the noises began. From the courtyard outside the great hall, the sound of chains rattling echoed ominously. The young man ignored the growing cacophony and bent forward over his parchment, the sound of his quill drowned out by the dreadful wailing that had begun. 
Still, the scholar refused to acknowledge the den. At last, he raised his gaze from his desk and looked towards the end of the hall. There, cloaked in pale rags with chains tied about his wrists, stood the ghost. He was an elderly man, his beard tangled and dirt caked across his face. He staggered slowly across the hall towards Callum, raising his bound hands as if grasping at the young man. Where his eyes should have been, only dark sockets were visible. With his pulse racing and the ghost almost upon him, the scholar raised his hand sternly, bidding the ghost wait until his writing was complete. He pointedly turned back to his parchment as the ghost fell silent. Callum's mouth was dry and his heart was pounding in his chest as he continued writing, carefully keeping watch on the insubstantial figure out of the corner of his eye even as he feigned apathy. For a long moment, the two watched each other. Then, the apparition beckoned for the scholar to follow and began limping towards the courtyard. The beckoning became more insistent. Callum carefully set down his quill and rose from his chair, following the old man out into the darkness. Suddenly, it was as if the phantom hadn't been there at all. The air was silent and still. The spirit was nowhere to be seen. Callum paused, examining his surroundings and considering where he had last seen the apparition. Eventually, he retired for the night, puzzled by the encounter. Something gnawed at his mind, a burning question that he would not be able to answer until the next day. As dawn broke the following morning, the young lord revisited the courtyard, this time with a shovel in hand. He broke the hard-packed earth himself, right where the ghostly figure had vanished. It was difficult labor, particularly for one unused to such physical exertion. His fingers blistered and his back ached as he dug deeper and deeper into the soil, until Eventually, he found something rather morbid. Bones. Human bones. A body had been buried in the courtyard. Rusted chains bound its wrists and pinned its arms to its torso. It was garbed in extravagant robes that must have once been resplendent silk, still faintly showing the rich purple dye that had once colored them. Now, however, they were little more than rags, chewed through by worms and torn apart by the elements. Callum had the bones removed from the manor. Instead, he interred them in a small graveyard, just within the forest that the house bordered. He and his attendants performed the burial rites that had long been denied to the deceased man, and a druid was called upon to bless his remains. There were no more rattling chains in the night, nor were there any wails of anguish. The specter was never seen again, and the house remained in Callum's family for many generations.
The Baron Amsend of Tarwin was not a kind man, a successful man, a powerful man, a wealthy man, but not a kind man. He lived in an opulent mansion, alone aside from the servants he employed. His wife had long since passed, leaving him childless. The only family that remained were his siblings, most of whom still lived in the family's ancestral home far from the capital city. The only one still in frequent contact with the Baron was his brother, Volfarsend. Despite being brothers, Amsend and Volfarsend were as different as humanly possible. While the Baron was miserly, Volfarsend was a spendthrift. While the Baron was coldly rational, Volfarsend was superstitious. And the Baron, unlike his brother, put no stock in folk rituals such as the Festival of Crossing's Eve. While even his wealthy contemporaries hosted bonfires and hired troops of entertainers, Amsend refused to even consider partaking in such frivolities. Every party and ceremony was a blow to his ledgers. If others wanted to throw their fortunes away on tradition, then let them. The Baron Amsend of Tarwin would not. The matter of fiscal responsibility had been a recurring conflict between the two brothers. Volfarsend, you see, had no money of his own. His family had money, certainly, but the Baron held the keys to the lockbox. When the younger brother needed money, his only recourse was to plead with his elder sibling for financial support, a fact that chafed on both of them for very different reasons. The Baron's refusal to participate in the traditional rites was a major point of concern for Volfarsend. The festival was as much a rite of protection as it was a celebration of the harvest, and, in the minds of many denizens of Veldrun, it was the only thing standing in the way of the fair folk crossing over into the human world to wreak havoc for a night and a day. Volfarsend certainly believed so, as many of his friends could attest. The Baron's indolent younger brother was known, amongst his other highly expensive vices, to hire soothsayers and fortune-tellers, listening with slack-jawed awe as they predicted that he would soon, always soon, stumble upon wealth and good fortune. His fear for his brother's safety was precipitated when his favorite oracle, a young woman from the far-off land of Tsoval, foretold that the Baron Amsend would be cursed by the King of the Fairies himself should the noble fail to observe the proper traditions that year. It was, as all such prophecies are, hopelessly vague. The nature of the curse was not specified, nor was the severity of its effects. But that lack of information did nothing to put Volfarsen's mind at ease. As the harvest began and the air started to take on the cold sting of winter, he met with his brother and pleaded for him to hire a druid to conduct the traditional rites. He told the Baron, as well as anyone who would possibly listen, about the prophecy and the danger he was in. This, of course, did not sit well with Amsend. His brother had spent large sums of money he didn't have on fortune tellers, and now he expected Amsend to spend similar amounts on equally frivolous rituals. The Baron refused. 
No amount of pleading or cajoling from his brother would sway his mind. The morning of Crossing's Eve arrived. It was a bleak morning. Storm clouds gathered darkly in the sky and promised a dismal evening. In the city, tents and canopies were raised, while wood and livestock bones were set aside to be kept dry for the bonfires. The weather might drive the revelers indoors, but it would do little else to dampen the celebratory mood. Outside of the protective walls and roofs of Veldast, however, a very different story was playing out. The dark skies were ominous and foreboding, and those who lived beyond the city's gates were hunkering down and preparing for the worst. Volfarsund began the trek to the Baron's Manor one last time, announcing to anyone who would listen that he was going to make a final attempt to persuade his brother before the storm was upon them. He declined an offer from a friend to accompany him, citing the steadily increasing downpour. His love for his brother compelled him to make the journey, but there was no reason for others to suffer through the dreary weather as well. He set off on horseback that afternoon. By the time he returned, the last traces of light through the clouds had faded, and a terrible storm was upon the city. Rain and wind lashed the buildings. The few passers-by who darted through the streets kept to the limited shelter provided by the pavilions that had been erected earlier that day. The bonfires sputtered and flickered, but continued searing through the bones that had been thrown atop them under the careful watch of their caretakers. The ruddy glow of firelight, the sound of conversation, and warm echoes of laughter spilled out of the public houses throughout the city. Though the torrential downpour had emptied the streets, the festival carried on indoors. The more credulous of the common folk were uneasy, however. Storms were portentous, and a storm on Crossing's Eve forebode that dark forces were roaming the land. In every gust of wind could be heard the hunting cry of the fairy king, and in every clap of thunder his hounds bayed. Assuming, of course, that you're one to put faith in legends. Volfarsen's friends said that he was distraught upon his arrival in Veldast, torn between mania and paranoia. He told them the story as he dried his sodden clothes and warmed himself by the hearth. The storm was well and truly upon the manor by the time he reached his brother's home. He hammered on the gates, but none of the servants could hear him over the deluge. After pulling at the gates and shouting at the walls to little effect, he conceded that there was nothing that could be done. Whatever fell spirits the Baron may have offended, Volfarsend was helpless to intercede on his brother's behalf. With the knowledge that he had done all he could, he turned his horse and began the journey back to Veldast. That was the story he told to his companions. The storm had exhausted itself by the following morning. 
The decorations were removed, the mummers put away their costumes, and the bonfires were no more than a mire of ashen mud. Crossing's Eve was over, and it was the beginning of the season of death. The talk of the city, however, was not on the aftermath of the festival. No, the gossip all centered on a disappearance. The Baron Omsund of Tarwin, it seemed, had vanished. Speculation was rampant. Had he truly offended the fair folk or a spirit of some kind? It seemed too far-fetched to be true, and yet he was nowhere to be found. His servants all told the same story, that he had dismissed them early in the afternoon to go be with their families and partake in the festivities, while the Baron himself remained secluded in his manor house to attend to his own pursuits. They had left as the rain began falling that afternoon and returned the next morning to find the Baron gone. Nothing was out of place. Nothing had been stolen. There were no notes or letters explaining his absence. It was as if he had simply vanished entirely. An investigation was conducted, but nothing of substance turned up. After a period of mourning, the Baron's titles and land were passed to his next of kin, his brother. The acquisition of vast sums of money and new responsibilities did nothing to change Volfarsen's extravagant spending habits. The manor, once a quiet and somber locale, quickly turned into a hotspot for the upper echelons of society. The new Baron of Tarwin threw parties and feasts with startling frequency, drawing the attention and admiration of the nobility that he had so desperately sought during his time as merely the younger brother of a baron. Unfortunately for the newly minted noble, it wasn't long at all before he discovered the wisdom of his late brother's miserly habits. The tax revenue from his estates did little to stem the money hemorrhaging out of his family's coffers, and he quickly found himself as penniless as he had been prior to receiving his inheritance. Ever short-sighted, he sold off his land to pad his coin purse, trying to extract the last ounce of prestige he could out of his titles. Soon, the only thing that remained to his name was the manor house. A house that Volfarsen lived the remainder of his brief life in. He was found dead in the Great Hall only a year later, his face frozen in a terrified grimace. A house that was bought and sold and bought and sold as it gained a reputation for being haunted. A house that fell into disrepair, the courtyard garden becoming overgrown with weeds as the gates, emblazoned with the image of a raven in flight, rusted shut on their hinges. A house that, through a chance of fate, was eventually purchased by a young lord named Callum of Tarfall. If you enjoy the Wayfarer's Compendium, the best way to support the podcast is to share it with your friends. Thank you for listening.